Welcome to The Third Story. I'm Leo Sidrin. Again and again, the message is clear. Music is not only a form of expression, it's also a mode of transportation. It's astounding how many people's lives have been completely transformed by their relationship with music. And sometimes the simplest experiences we have as kids can profoundly alter the course of everything that follows. In the case of Andy Norell, a few seemingly unrelated events during his early childhood in New York helped to lay out a path for him to follow, and it's one that he's still following today. Those events included Joseph McCarthy's Red Scare, a rise in gang violence in Harlem in the 1960s, and the innovations of a musical instrument maker from Trinidad named Ellie Manette. Andy Norell is known as one of the most celebrated, if not the most celebrated, steel drum player in the world. Throughout a career spanning over five decades, he's contributed to both the development of steel drum music and to the development of the drums themselves. He's appeared on hundreds of records and film scores. He's been the subject of two documentary films himself. He's made nearly 20 records as a leader or a co-leader. He's an educator, an advocate, and an ambassador for the music, culture, and traditions of Trinidad, where steel drums, or pans as they're called, were born. If you've ever heard the sound of steel drums on a record or in a movie, chances are you've heard Andy Norell. His eventual partnership and friendship with Ellie Minette, the so-called father of the steel drum, lasted until Minette's death in 2018. What you hear behind me is Norell's Etude for Ellie from his 2017 album, We Kinda Music. Although We Kind of Music is still Andy's most recent formally released album, he did in fact put out another project last year called Like a Child, where he performs all the steel drum parts using a sample library that he spent years developing with Minette. It's called Steel Pan's Ellie Minette Collection, and Andy believes that it has the potential to transform the future of the steel drum. Andy Norell's contribution to steel drums is immeasurable. His love of the music and the culture of Trinidad is huge, and his friendship with Ellie Manette seems to have been one of the most important relationships of his life. But beyond all that, beyond all the technical, musical, or even the historical details, Andy is an example of someone whose devotion and love for a thing took him around the world, and the steel drum was his mode of transportation. We talked last year in Madison, Wisconsin, when I was home visiting my family, and he was in town for a week as a visiting artist. During our talk, Andy not only shared his own personal story with me, but also the story of the steel pan itself, the trajectory of Calypso music from Trinidad to the UK and the US and then back to Trinidad, and where he fits in that story. I saw him again shortly after that when he came to see me play with my own band, because when he's not on the road, he splits his time these days between Paris and St. Lucia. Third-story.com is the place to go to sign up, subscribe, and check the archive featuring hundreds of conversations with other folks who have traversed space and time through music and art. Visit wbgo.org studios to check out all their award-winning content, including this very podcast, which is made in collaboration with them. And then it's patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast, where you can go to throw a coin into my wishing well. Music will also be a mode of transportation for me personally this season. I'll be doing shows in New York and then across Europe to present my new record, What's Trending, which comes out March 10th. Check out leosidrin.com to see my trajectory. Without further ado, here's me and Andy Norell talking it down in Madison. Andy Norell, I never know where to start with somebody like you because you have such an extensive and broad history and so many great stories to tell. So I think I want to start by talking about what you're doing this week in Madison, Wisconsin, as the artist in residence. I think maybe it speaks a little bit to a part of your life that is spent 
teaching and advocating for what you do? Yeah, it's been an interesting week. Uh, it's been filled with uh, rehearsals and concert, uh, concerts just about every day. Um, I came here, actually, the, the people that brought me here, the, the, the idea was from people that have studied steel band music with me. Yeah. And uh, there's a steel band here in Madison called Panchromatic, and they're playing the learning part of their repertoire is music that I've composed for steel orchestra. And so they, they wanted to bring me here to do, uh, you know, rehearsals, workshops, get, work with the band and play concerts. And then uh, things kind of filled out. We're, I'm also playing with a, a group that's uh, called Caribou, mm -hmm. and uh, that's led by Harvey Wirt and Etienne Stadwick, which, who are both from Suriname. And that has a lot to do with the character of that band. And I've been playing with them. Hmm. I did... Uh, a duet concert with your dad, Ben yep. Sidron, who was an old friend of mine. And uh, there's a jam session tonight and uh, and so on. And tomorrow uh, night, we're going to play a whole concert of my music. We're going to play, uh, I'm going to play a, an hour set with a jazz combo, like piano, bass, drums, vibes, congas, percussion. And, uh, and then we're going to play another set with the steel band playing uh, music that I write for steel orchestra. So, which is something I do, uh, you know, I'm, that's kind of how a lot of my work is divided between uh, small jazz ensembles and large steel orchestras, which can range uh, up to 100 players or more. Is this kind of thing typical for you or common for you to go to a, a place and sort of spend some time with the local musicians and also play some of your own original music with them? Yeah, usually it's not so uh, many different things. Yeah. Um, um, I'm usually, typically, uh, I'll travel somewhere, I, often by myself, and yeah. put a band together, a jazz group, yeah. and play a concert like yeah. that. Or I'll go and uh, I'll be traveling and I'll be teaching at universities where I teach steel band music. And it's all orchestral music that I've composed. And, yeah. uh, and I, I do rehearsals, master classes, and a concert, and then just go to the next school and do it again. Yeah. Different repertoire everywhere. And uh, so it... it but uh, it's, it often is mixed, is mixed. I just came from doing one at uh, University of North Texas where mm -hmm. uh, I was playing with the, uh, working with the steel band and with the percussion ensembles and also a, a jazz concert where, with Paquito de Rivera mm -hmm. and Mark Walker where we kind of brought back the Caribbean jazz project. And is there a part of you when you find yourself teaching at universities and conservatories that, I don't know, marvels at how far this instrument has come and the music around it in the space of 60, 70 years. I mean, in your lifetime, this whole thing kind of has unfolded. The, first of all, you have to go back to the beginning. And yeah. That's where the, the real miracle of creation was. I mean, this thing, the very first steel bands were, were teenage kids in the 1939 uh, parading through the streets in Trinidad beating on metal, biscuit tins, paint cans, garbage cans, uh, pieces of junk from cars, brake mm -hmm. drums and stuff. And um, in the 40s, they discovered they could actually tune a few notes on the top of a paint can, and it, they started to, it, it went from being pure rhythm to kind of polytonal rhythm. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ellie Manette, who make, made my instruments, was the first person to tune the notes of a scale on top of a 55-gallon oil drum, and that was in the late 40s, and he went on the radio and played a melody. Hmm. And what happened was an explosion of creativity and, and trying to it, work with this idea all over the island. And in, in 15 years, they, they created all the voices of the orchestra, and they had become uh, 
symphonic and chromatic, all the instruments chromatic. We could go back to, you know, even 1951 when it was the first time uh, a steel band from Trinidad went abroad yeah. to England and France to play. And it was called TASPO, the all-steel percussion, Trinidad All-Steel Percussion Orchestra. They play on oil drums, the Trinidad All-Steel Percussion Orchestra, on instruments called ping-pongs, kittles, booms, and cutters. Beating pan, they call it, and it's a fascinating performance, calypsos and all. And they had a, they hired a, a guy to direct the group who was a big band mm-hmm. director, a guy who worked with horn sections and stuff like that. And he saw that there weren't enough notes in the low pans, that there, there were a lot of notes missing and not enough to play all different kinds of chord changes mm-hmm. and, and stuff. And he, and there, the, the, the fortunate thing is that there were two, the two most creative tuners at the time were Ellie Manette and Tony Williams. They were both in the band. Mm. And Ellie created a, a, a three-drum bass, uh, a, a bass instrument with, because they have large notes once you get down in the right, lower Right, so you register. can't put it into two, so, two drums. So, you know, the bass was originally one note and two and so on. And now he, he created one that could play more bass lines and chords. And Tony created a double uh, cello. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was uh, just a breakthrough. And by the end of, by the end of that decade, they, all the instruments were chromatic. What kind of music was happening in Trinidad before the steel pan? Calypso music, yeah. Calypso was already happening. From the early 20th century, Calypso was, had taken hold. The Calypso went through a similar development in, in, the, in the same space of time because if you look at it in the 20s and 30s, most, most of the Calypsonians were singing the same thing. Mm-hmm. They were singing different lyrics, but they were, they were using a form, like ex-tempo form, where they would play the same music over and over, and then they would just improvise new lyrics or compose new lyrics. And uh, the, the, the real breakthrough in the music was uh, Lord, uh, a guy named Lord Kitchener. Alwyn Roberts was his real name, and Lord Kitchener was his Calypso name. And he went to England uh, in 1948 and discovered jazz and bebop music. And started. He spent ten years there, and, and he and a, a group of very, very talented Trinidadian musicians. They just got locked into the scene there, and they started playing with jazz musicians and uh, uh, cutting rec- all their records there. London is the place for me. London, this lovely city. You can go to France or America. India, Asia, or Australia, but you must come back to London City. Calypso music in that time period underwent a transformation from kind of simple form, three chord music to uh, long form, long melodies, just like standards, just like jazz standards today. You know, you listen to a song like. You listen to Stella by Starlight, and yeah. you listen to Kitchener's Margie, and you'll hear, you know, wow, it, it just, <laughs> this music became jazz. And they also brought the big band sound in. Yes. The, the horn sections, and it, Calypso music was transformed. Margie, you're the always making rounds. You could bet, you could please, you must listen now. You always wanted me to make you so happy. Well, darling, I'll find the solution to your desire and ambition. I mean, it sounds like because, in part, because Trinidad was a part of the British Empire, that the relationship and the the point of contact with 
more contemporary sounds like jazz came from England, not from the States necessarily, but as you describe it, it came when the Trinis went to England and right. found it over there. And Kitchener was over there, and he wrote a song about Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie hmm. <laughs> called right. Bebop Calypso. So they were listening to the American music, but yeah, yeah it was in London and Manchester where they were they were playing. Ah, this bebop music is really terrific. This bebop music is really terrific. Well, I nearly went crazy when I heard the record of Gillespie. It really enchanted me just to hear him play anthropology. Yes, sir. Okay, so meanwhile... In uh, in the 1950s, another what w- I think will turn out to be an innovation in the evolution of steel, steel pan emerges in New York, and that is that you are born in the 1950s in New York City. Uh, yeah, I was born in 54. So, but that didn't affect steel band music right away for a while. <laughs> Tell me, how do you, a Jewish kid from New York, find yourself playing the, the music of Trinidad and these instruments and this? Yeah. Thing? In a way, it, it all goes back. It all goes back to Joe McCarthy, because <laughs> uh, my dad got uh, blacklisted. He was uh, headed for the teaching profession. He was trying to get a doctorate in education and uh, and and go on to be a teacher and educator. And and he got kicked out of the profession for being a com- his communist activities. Yes, and. Um, so he bounced around a whole lot of jobs and eventually fell into social work by way of uh, one of his old friends from the from the party mm. um, who found him a job in Harlem on ex- uh, experimental project on how to deal with gang warfare and so he started dealing with with gangs and heroin right from the you know and that was like the late 50s what were the gangs Puerto Rican gangs, uh, uh, well, black in gangs? Harlem, both, yeah, and and he, uh, I, I, I actually was too young to like yeah. really know what was going on with the Harlem thing, but then he moved to the Lower East Side, yeah, and it was a place called the Educational Alliance, which had originally been a Jewish settlement house on the uh, Lower East Side. You know, all the ethnicities had settlement houses to yeah. help their people adjust the immigrants, and this one had been converted to uh, its purpose had been re. Uh, converted to serve the new immigrants who were mostly blacks from the South and Puerto Ricans. And that's who was living in the housing projects. And mm-hmm. that's who the ga- the kids in the gangs were. Yeah. And uh, I used to go uh, to, I was very young. I was, you know, we're talking about being seven years old yeah. now. And I would go with him to work and hang out, play ball, you know, and uh, or we'd get on a bus and go to the beach with everybody or some rock away. And they had a summer camp that they were running where they got the kids out of the city and out to the country for a while. And uh, there was a guy who wasn't working out as a counselor. Hmm. And they, but re- instead of just firing him outright, they asked him what else he knew how to do. And uh, what else? And, and he said, you know, I know how to play steel pans. And I, I, had, I know how to make them too. And uh, he was from Antigua. And my father had seen a band play once. That was it. He'd seen a little steel band once, and he said he ventured, "Let's try it. Let's hire this guy. See what he see what happens with it." And he made one set of pans, and he taught one group, and they were out playing gigs. Uh, everybody wanted to do it when they saw it. All the kids, and within a year and a half, they had launched twenty steel bands in two rehearsal rooms with two sets of pans. And by 1962, he had uh, organized the first steel band festival in America, and uh, 
I was playing already. He brought some, he became obsessed with the thing, you know, it was like, this is the greatest idea ever. And the interesting thing w- that was that he didn't know that the steel band had been created by kids in gangs when he hit on this idea yes. that, that this would be something that might interest the kids. And um, so, and, you know, but basically what happened was he brought some home and we started playing as a family and we pretty well kicked my parents out as fast as we could. We got some friends uh, to form a steel band, my brother and I and our friends. And um, we, and my father managed us, got us gigs, drove us around. We were just kids. And between, uh, in, in the 60s, I played about 800 steel band gigs mm. before I uh, had finished high school. Did you relate to music before that? I mean, you, st- you found the steel band when you were seven years old, but I mean, were you musical in any way before that? Did you play A little bit. Else? I was starting to play piano when I was six, and, yeah. and I played piano all along. Um, but uh, the band kind of took off for me. You know, it was just like a, an intuitive thing. I started playing uh, the bass, and I started playing a very simplified bass instrument. It had four notes on it, mm-hmm. and I wasn't very good at it. And uh, But then uh, I... I kind of drifted over to the uh, the pan that was playing the melody, the tenor pan, and uh, realized that I could just play it. That was it. I I heard the melodies that we were playing, and I could just play them. Uh-huh. And so I became the the front man in the band, <laughs> the lead player, you know. And from the time I was eight years old, that was what huh. I was doing. I heard you say at this concert that you did with my dad the other day that you you first fell in love with the pan and then you heard jazz and improvised music and you thought I want to learn how to improvise and since the steel pan was your instrument it seems pretty clear seemed pretty clear to you that you wanted to learn how to improvise on that instrument yeah that's pretty accurate um I was uh, we were playing steel band music and uh I guess I was about 13 or so I uh I think I, my parents got me an AM FM radio yeah. And uh, I started listening to WLIB. I discovered that it was they were broadcasting from Harlem, mm-hmm. and they had DJs like Dr. Billy Taylor, mm-hmm. you know, who who just completely opened up my mind to yeah. not only the music but the people that were making that music. And mm-hmm. it was that was the first time I felt like, yeah, I want to be like them. <laughs> I want to do that. How do you do that? You know, and I didn't really you know know much about it. I was just starting to improvise and. Uh, and I remember there was a guy that came to play with us. He, he was a, a a good, very good guitar player, and and he knew was playing with a lot of people and just playing with us to pay his rent. Hmm. And you know, he kind of pulled me aside and said, "You know, you 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 maybe you know a little more than you think you know, and and like you ought to come down and try to sit in." And he he invited me down, and I I went down to the village on a Sunday afternoon and sat in at a jam session that was being run by a bass player named Major Holly, who's a great bass player. Where was the session? At the gate? No, it was uh, it was called Jacques, uh-huh. and it was on Bleecker Street. Yeah. It was a block down from the village. The gate, that was it. The, the village gate. Yeah. I didn't know much repertoire, but uh, I had a good ear, and I, I knew a few tunes. They were always called St. Thomas when I walked in, so I could always, I knew that was coming. <laughs> Do you think that the steel pan <laughs> does lend itself to that, to hard to find the the way to swing? I you definitely are a swinger on the instrument, but I was thinking as I saw you play it, is it is there something about the straighter feel or the less 
swung for you? I don't know. You know, I think it's cultural. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've never been really a much of a bebop player. Yeah. And it never really worked on that very much. It wasn't what I wanted to do or, yeah. you know. And uh, somehow I, I guess I've... I've the more I've I've grown as an improviser, I think I've I've kind of like simultaneously grown my my harmonic and melodic melodic mm. vocabulary into a the jazz idiom, yeah. but at the same time feeling uh, the the swing of Afro Caribbean music yes. as being more suited to what I what I like to do yeah. or what I play better, yeah. you know. And so I've uh, I, I I just went that way, you know, yeah. and uh, it's worked. So you go down to the session on a Sunday afternoon, and you you know some tunes, sort of, and you and you play St. Thomas. And what was the reaction in general, though, of the musicians? In New I, York? Well, the funniest thing, the funniest was Major Holly, the guy that was hosting it. He was yeah. he was quite a bit older and, yeah. and uh, really from the, a jazz background, and he was just mystified by <laughs> me. He couldn't figure it out. Yeah, he he would, and he didn't have my name yeah. ever correct or anything like that. But he would he would call me things like the black man's white man. Yeah, <laughs> I was fifteen years old, <laughs> you know, and. Uh, so uh yeah it was it was rather odd you know i mean uh i was breaking new ground i was yeah. trying to play jazz on pan and and that you know it, it, there's a few instances of it before that where like there's a record that i i, I still love from the invader steel band in in uh around 1960 or so and there was a guy named cobra jack in the band who could, he played a beautiful bebop solo on one of the tunes, hmm. and it's still one of my favorite pan solos ever recorded. You know. <laughs> Was he listening to the radio, yeah. or did they have records, or you know, did he have access to to those records? Because is real the bebop language is there. You know, he's like blowing a beautiful swing solo on a calypso. Hmm. So and uh, and the more I've found in in old older records and research stuff, I've I've been hearing that there were improvisers in Trinidad in the fifties hmm. already. Uh, so they must have been hearing it. Yeah, and uh, you know, but. Uh, as far as actually wanting to be a, a jazz musician, that was I was sort of breaking new ground. You know, I mean, there wasn't anybody doing it. I I didn't have a model to follow. You know, this thing about the black man's white man as out there as it might sound. I think I know what he's talking about. I mean, what you describe is a deeper and deeper relationship that continues to this day with black culture or Afro-Caribbean mm -hmm. culture, as, yeah. as you say. and But it starts at seven years old when you basically are hanging out at this camp with a bunch of kids who have a very different background from you. And I wonder if, as you were falling in love with the instrument and deepening your relationship with it, if part of what was happening also was your approaching black culture 
mm-hmm. and finding a way to discover yourself within it. It was the 60s. Yeah. You know, it was the, it was the civil rights movement. My parents were very political from the time they were in college, and they were very involved with civil rights and socialism and communism and all this, these ideas. My, my, my dad at this point, my parents were very anti-ex, they were very ex-anti-communist mm-hmm. at this point. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Terribly. They, the, the, the most anti-communist people are the people that feel like they got burned by the communists. Is it fear or anger? Disillusionment anger and disappointment. Yeah. My mom grew up in a in a very idealistic uh, family in Poland, yeah. and uh, they were her her uncle, her father, and her uncles were all either socialist, communist, Zionist, everything. Yeah. You know? And uh, she actually worked for her uncle, who was uh, uh, the Polish ambassador to the UN hmm. wow. in in the late forties, and she was his secretary, and she. Uh, she knew he was improvising a lot of stuff that he was saying. It, it wasn't a fact. But it really didn't hit her until she went back there and she saw um, how terrible things were for people there yeah. and how the uh, the elites had everything. And it was a police state. And, yeah. uh, and she came back and uh, t- tucked my father out of the whole thing, out of their whole involvement, and she wrote a book about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and subsequently, was uh, sh- they tried to expel my mom from the country. I mentioned Mac- McCarthy and that whole thing. My dad was uh, s- subpoenaed by the House Un-American Activities Committee and blacklisted and all that stuff. But my mom also, they, they gave her a, a deportation notice. Was, she had to fight for a number of years before she became a citizen. Mm. And I found out later that the FBI had 1,000 pages on my parents. Mm. <laughs> and they sound like they as political as they were. They were they were just they were ordinary just, people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just teaching steel. But that band. was J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah, you know this was a massive uh, spying campaign, and uh, at that time it was communist, and then it became the civil rights people, and then the Black Panthers, and he just yeah. went after them one after the, one yeah. after the other, the enemies of America. You know. Well, as much of an American artist as you are, I mean. You know, in today's calendar, you spend half the year in France and the other half in St. Lucia. I know you spent a lot of time in the Bay over the years, but I mean, do you think some of that influenced your ultimately your decision not to spend time in the States or not want to be here? You chose to live abroad ultimately. Yeah, I mean, I didn't move over there until 20 years ago. I mean, I I lived in the U.S. I lived 30 years in the San Francisco Bay Area and I grew up in New York. Yeah. But it, it's given me uh, some real a different perspective and seeing kind of, you know, people think people think because I'm abroad that I don't know what's going on here. And it's like, come on, we got the internet, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the same news you're reading. I'm yeah. reading the New York Times, yeah. you know. Um, but but being outside the country has given me another, a little bit different perspective on, on what's happening here. And, uh, and I'm glad to not be here. Yeah. I mean, I am in America a lot. I'm enough here to stay in touch. My kids are out in California. My grandkids are in California. Yeah. And so uh, I spend a lot of time here and I work here. I teach at a lot of universities. I spend time with my family. And But I'm also glad to be out of it Yeah, in a way. I'm, I'm, I live in, uh, I spend six months a year living in a, a little fishing village that has no corporations and no traffic. And uh, no, n- none of the big time development mm-hmm. where we are 
And then I live in a in a another part of the year in Paris, which is like one of the most. It's like New York, but different. Yeah, it's like the one of the most diverse cities in the world. And yeah. for me, as a musician, it, it was a fascinating place to go because the mix of uh, it's the center of the world for African music. Yes. And then you have this whole Caribbean population of uh, people who aren't in America really aren't hip to this. Like how much incredible music is coming out of Martinique and Guadeloupe. Yeah and La Réunion, yeah. Reunion Island, and places like that. And then there's, so this whole mix of, you know, people I play with in Paris and, and get to listen to and play with and interact with, yeah. they're from North Africa, they're from West Africa, they're from, the you know, the French Caribbean, yes. and there's Cubans and Brazilians and people from all over the world, and, and Americans yeah. and French players, you know. And yeah. uh, so, you know, it, it's... Musically, culturally, in many ways, it, it's 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 good to experience something else. I had to learn, I had to become fluent in French, you know, yeah. which was I always wanted to do and wasn't doing while I was here. I could study a little, but I wasn't getting fluent. Yeah. And uh, I went over to uh, to play with some musicians from Martinique and Guadeloupe, Mario Canoge, uh, Michel Alibot, and Jean-Philippe Fanfan. Mm -hmm. And I went over to teach at a steel band school in Paris called Calypso Session. Mm -hmm. And I was also teaching around some other parts of Europe. But I got involved with Calypso Session. And then I, I met the woman that I subsequently married. And uh, <laughs> I stayed, I, you know, you go over for the music and stay for the woman. I don't think you're the first, and nor will you be the last to tell that story. <laughs> no, definitely not. But I mean, I guess the reason I framed the question the way I did is because, you know, in talking about the, even your discovery of the instrument, you, uh, you start with McCarthy. And, yeah. and again, in asking you the question about what it was like to interact with the black community, the Afro-Caribbean community, your answer leans political. And you talk about like, the nature of the family that you grew up in and how maybe that like opened up, you know, your willingness to embrace people yeah. that didn't look like you, you know? You know, I, I think I was always comfortable with it, yeah. you know, in terms of like, be, and that I have my father to thank for that, yeah. you know, because he took me to work with him and he brought those guys home and, yeah. and you know, my kind of, the, the, his, his third adopted son was uh, one of the Puerto Rican kids from the mm -hmm. neighborhood who, became like my big brother, you know, and uh, so, but then, you know, in my teens, I, I just realized it was like the music that I was into, it was yeah. like, the pop music was Motown, Yeah, of course the Beatles and stuff like that, but it was like really, Motown was what was yeah. happening, and, um, and then jazz, yeah. and I, I started, all the people that I wanted to be like, all the people that I wanted to to, that I thought sounded the hippest, you know, it was just almost all black people, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, Miles and Coltrane yeah. and Herbie and, and yeah. Wayne Shorter and Cannonball Adderley and Thelonious Monk and Art Blakey and Elvin Jones and Tony Williams and, and finally, you know, Bill Evans, okay, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but, yeah. but it was yeah. like all these these giants that I looked up to and and wanted to... It was the first people to inspire me to want to be like somebody. Yeah, they were all black people and yeah. bl these great black musicians. That and sports was the other area. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it was basketball. That's the sport I've always loved and watched and stuff. So, you know, and and that was the period when you know black people took over professional basketball. Basically, yep. I was living through Bill Russell. Yeah, you know, as, as a Nick fan, you know. Sure. <laughs> Inevitably, 
you had to go to Trinidad, right? I mean, this this instrument that your instrument came from Trinidad. You you spent, you know, your high school years playing eight hundred gigs or whatever it is that you said all of. But at mm-hmm. some point, you're going to have to go to Trinidad and see it. When did you first go there? I was. 12 years old the first time I went. It was 1966, and we played as guest artists, like an opening act on the National Music Festival, which was a competition for 30-piece steel bands. Yeah. And they were playing all, like, mostly classical music at that festival. On the steel pan? Yeah, sure. That's something that came about. The first steel band to actually play a classical... Well, the first steel bands playing classical music were were called bomb tunes. It was in the 1950s, and they... uh, they would, for carnival, they would arrange like classical music or pop tunes to in, as a in calypso rhythm, mm-hmm. and go out and play them on the road, and it was done for shock value and to get public and and people, and it's, um, it's it's remained. There's the bomb tune is still part of uh, not only part of steel band music but a big part of what I do. Hmm. When I when you talk about me playing a jazz tune with a calypso swing, I'm, that's what I'm doing. A I'm, bomb tune. It's, it's all. It, it relates. It all relates back to bomb tunes, you know. Uh, you know, you have a, a pop tune like "Hello, young lovers, wherever you are," right? And they will go "Bam ba dum, bam ba dum, bam ba dum, bam ba bam, bam bam ba dum, bam bam bam." They turn it into four. They'll turn it yeah. into a calypso swing, you know, yeah. and. Um, there was that, but then the first band that, to come along and play a classical piece, really like interpreted as a classical piece, was a group called the, the Pan Am North Stars. And I mentioned this guy, Tony Williams. He was a, a tuner, and he was the leader and captain of the band. He tuned the pans, and he arranged all the music. Mm-hmm. And um, they were like, there was, there's never been a better playing band, in, mm. in, in my opinion. This band was just fantastic and they there's a clip of them on on youtube playing voices of spring mm-hmm. um on ed sullivan hmm. in 1964 which was uh the, the, that first piece they did it at the 62 music festival yeah. now from trinidad here to appear in the caribbean calypso carnival at carnegie hall anthony williams world championship steel band and limbo dancers so let's have a wonderful welcome to our revolutionary period and so all in the 60s what what happened was they developed they had these classical music competitions where they all the bands would come and play straight straight interpretations of classical music and they would also they also developed the thing, a festival called panorama mm-hmm. which began in 1963 and what that was was a looking for a bigger audiences and bigger venues and so they started uh, with this competition and Within by the end of the '60s, they had a hundred-piece bands. You know, it was just it just went exploded. This whole thing. Well, so there's a part of the development of the instrument that is very musically rich and interesting, and then there's this other part of it which is more community-oriented. And mm-hmm. you know, like I heard you say the other day on stage, and I can hear that it goes all the way back to the development of the instrument in your telling of the story, that there's a kind of pacifying element about 
steel bands, right? That wherever you said the other day on stage, wherever there are steel bands, there's a kind of an eradication or a limiting of violence among the people that are interested it's, in it. I don't know if it, I wouldn't call it pacification yeah. it, so much as a, it, it, it breaks down the bar, a lot of barriers between people. Um, what happened was it, it, in the beginning, steel bands were tough black kids, yeah. poor kids from the poor neighborhoods, all right? It was all black, all male, yeah. all young. And they, they carried weapons with them, not guns, but they carried knives with them. And they would meet up in the streets and they'd have a clash. They would, they would literally fight and send people to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, were, they, they didn't include other, anyone else. It was just the gangs, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, in, in the 50s, uh, they started to get popular. And mm-hmm. other, more people wanted to play the music. Yeah. Women wanted to play and they were excluded from the band. So they formed all, all girl bands. Yeah. There was a group, of, there was a steel band called Dem Boys and uh, their sisters all wanted to play. So they started a group called Dem Girls, mm-hmm. you know, and there was another called Girl Pat and mm-hmm. they were very well known. Ellie Manette worked with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they had, you, you had this and then you had some of the middle class kids and the lighter skinned kids, all these social distinctions yeah. and stuff. Uh, it's a very diverse society. Trinidad is black and Indian and white and mixed and Chinese and Middle Easterns yeah. and Europeans all thrown together. And um, as steel bands began to become more inclusive, by the by the 60s, women were starting to break into the band. Uh, it was racially, st- the racial barriers were starting to break down. Yeah. And by the 70s, it was really, um, women were, in the bands so and what what you see in steel band music is like a breakdown of the barrier between professional and amateur Mm -hmm. these are amateur orchestras where where people can amateurs can play at a world-class level Hmm. and male and female and black and white and indian and chinese and young and old and everybody could play together in these community orchestras that were like striving to be the best in the world Mm -hmm. you know and we're literally starting to go on world tours hmm. um, perform for everybody. And st- for some reason, steel band music seems to have this kind of an effect wherever it goes, you know? I mean, it, it's, it's a kind of music and an instrument where it's accessible. Mm-hmm. I can take a group of beginners and have them sounding like a beginning steel band in one hour, mm. you know, playing a tune. People that have never played the instrument before, and they can play together in the space of that first hour. Hmm. Um, and and then you can spend the rest of your life trying to learn how to excel <laughs> at it, just like any other instrument, and it has all that potential. So um, it's a really remarkable uh, story. And, and in Trinidad, uh, the these gangs went from street fighting gangs to like world-class orchestras mm-hmm. uh, having musical competitions instead of uh, fights. Yeah. And... You know, one of the things when when you said pacification, I was yeah. like, hmm. You know, it's funny because they still they still kind of treat these competitions like it's a war. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the only place I I know where where a music concert is referred to as a war. They call it a war. <laughs> yeah, the panorama is war. Yeah, you can you can ask anybody about that, and, and I think it's it's the culture is changing. But I've I have personally been in pan yards the night before finals and heard a half an hour war speech inspiring the soldiers to go out there and take no prisoners the next day, you know. And uh, it, it's, it's, you can feel the old guard 
where they came from. Yeah. You know, those were the old guys that came up through the gangs, and and (laughs) they they were suspicious of uh, anybody coming around. It was very very secretive. You know, the bands they would if another uh, players from another band came by to listen to them practice, they would consider them spies. You know, they came here to steal the music and stuff like that. They came to steal our steal our stuff. Yeah. You know. How were you viewed, though? I mean, over you went the first time when you were twelve years old. But how have you been viewed, and what what has the relationship been for you personally, like in Trinidad? Yeah, I, you know, it's there's always been people that are suspicious of me. Yeah. You know, here's here's this white guy from from who's not from here, who's yeah. uh, taken the pan, and and some people think uh, I'm just I've just taken their thing and made a, a personal success for myself out hmm. of what they created. But I think you know what happened. What what happened early on was that people from Trinidad could really see that um, that I loved them, that I loved this instrument, I loved the music, I loved the people, and that I'm an ambassador for them, and that they would come to my gigs and hear me talking about Trinidad and Pan and the story behind it, and telling all these international audiences about it, and they have to revise their. Uh, Suspicious. Pre-thinking yeah. bias about me, uh, about this guy. You know, and so many of my friends are, are in Trinidad, from Trinidad, and my closest friends, uh, personal relationships, working relationships. And then I have this whole bond with the people and, and uh, through representing them that has really changed my relationship with yeah. people. And the other thing is that I, I didn't go back for 20 years after that first trip I made. Hmm. So, but once I, I went back in the mid-'80s, I was constantly there every year. What kept you from going back for those 20 years? Well, I was just a, I was just a kid, you know, yeah. and, uh, and I spent the next period of time kind of going through my life, you know, which was at first not really headed into music. I went to, when I went to college, I was a pre-med, hmm. which was sort of what was expected of me. You know, you were supposed to go to medical school and find a cure for cancer and win the Nobel Prize, you know, and... And that's what took you normal out. expectations for a Jewish kid, kid yeah. from New York. You know, that's what took you to Berkeley, though. Is that where you went first? Uh, well, I didn't. I was. I moved to Berk to uh-huh. the the Bay Area, and yeah. that's why I went to UC Berkeley. Pre med. I was a pre med, but then I switched to music and composition. By the time I was done with school, I finished with a music major, and I feel like you know when I got out of school, that's when I really began my music education. Huh. You know, uh, starting to learn about Afro. Afro-Cuban music and Brazilian music yeah. and jazz and and just the, it's never it it hasn't stopped. I'm studying all the time. I had a I've had a couple of East Bay related conversations for this podcast. One was with Dave Garibaldi, who described the East Bay in the '60s and '70s as being this wonderful, rich coming together of a lot of you know. Uh, different styles of music and ethnicities and that they were all Latin music and black music and yeah. jazz. And it was really coming together at that time. The, uh, the, the funk was, a lot of funk was born in, in the East Bay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you look at like, you know, uh, Tower of Power and Graham Central Station yeah. and, and all yeah. those, those kind of bands. And then you have the, the whole rock scene and, yeah. the, and the jazz scene was, and the, the, a lot of people were playing Latin music, you yes. know. Uh, jazz, Latin music, fusion, you know. So, yeah, it was a real melting pot and a, a good place to be at that time. And were you 
absorbed into the local scene there at first when you got there? S- somewhat, a little bit. You know, I, I was going to school, and, and, you know, when I first got there, <laughs> the, uh, I was 15 when I moved, all right? And I, I went down to an interview with, uh, uh, with Parks and Recreation in Oakland with a director, one of the directors there at Oakland Parks and Rec. And I went with my father, and he proposed starting a steel band program there. He said, we have the pans, you know. And, and uh, she said, who's going to teach? And he was like, him, you know. <laughs> so I, uh, and she went for it. That was the amazing thing. She went for it. And so your, your, so, whole, and so fam- I, your whole family moved to Yeah, to, I moved to, with my the, family. Got it, to and, California. And so on my 16th birthday, I was at the DMV taking my driver's test. And I think that night or the next night I was at work, you know. And I was teaching in a community center. So I was teaching steel band music all through college. And then, uh, you know, it was during that time that I, I started playing studio sessions. When I got out there, I, I, uh, I started playing kind of one track on various albums for David Rubinson, who was a big producer at that time. He ultimately was a producer for all of Herbie Hancock's big records, and uh, I uh, played on albums for Taj Mahal and mm-hmm. Phoebe Snow and the Pointer Sisters and Patti LaBelle and... Uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary. A lot, of, a lot of different artists that he was producing over the years. So he liked the sound of the steel steel drum. He liked... Yeah, he, he liked, liked having one, one track here and there, you know. Uh. I spent last summer on an island In the Mediterranean Sea The sunshine was so bright, child You know it burned me down to my soul But uh, it was also my introduction to, to my first real introduction to engineering, yeah. you know, because uh, Fred Katera was engineering all those records. And uh, he was the guy that had done Blood, Sweat, and Tears in yeah. Chicago and Janis yeah. Joplin yeah. around that time. So very influential cat. And I worked with him a lot and with Roy Halley, who came out there to the Bay Area. And, um, you know, some there were some good engineers in the Bay Area sure. also. I started, I, I got a break with, uh, I was playing Pan on the Street when I was 18, and Bernie Krause heard me play, hmm. uh, walking by, and he said, give me your phone number, you know, and or call me tomorrow or something. And I started, Bernie was uh, part of a, the synthesizer pioneer. He and Paul Beaver were the first guys to play synths on L.A. sessions. Hmm. And they taught a lot of the people in L.A. And they also wrote the Nonsuch Guide to Electronic Music and put out a few albums. Mm. And, and, but Bernie was uh, not a keyboard player. He needed somebody to play keyboards for him. And I sort of became his synth player, but also he let me arrange. And he was producing a lot of commercials at the time, and he, he let me learn on the job. I was writing rhythm section, horns, strings, background vocals. Yep. And it was real school because... We would go in, you know, they didn't have drum sets in the studios in those days. You had to bring everything in, mm-hmm. the drum sets, the the amps, everything. And we would cut, like, rhythm section. We'd do a 30-second version and a 60-second version. Yep. And then um, we'd do uh, strings, horns, background vocals, lead vocals, narration, synth overdubs, mix, all in one day. Yeah. And so that was production school for me. Yeah. And I was like... 19 years old you know I was getting into it I was just out of school and uh, uh, it was a 
big break. The last job that, that I did with Bernie before he changed professions was Apocalypse Now. We worked on that for a month together on the score. Really? And, uh, and then he changed professions and went into field recording of he, he helped create this whole new field of studying the environment by listening to it and has done, made tens of thousands of recordings of mm. out in nature, wildlife. You know, the, the idea is you go to the same place year after year, the same date, the same time of day, and you record it and you listen to it and you can hear species disappearing. Mm that way and you can see it they have a pro he uses a program called audition mm -hmm. adobe makes it and it gives you a spectral analysis of the whole frequency range and you can actually see all the different species they're by like, frequency yeah but they're in they they have a certain kind of you know shape yeah and they're in a certain frequency range yeah and you can i once you know and so part of his expertise is in biology and zoology is to learn about what he's listening to yeah and uh you know, to to study uh, what's happening out there in the environment. He's, Bernie has said that like about half of the uh, habitats that he's studied are, have disappeared, you know. And, uh, but they, you can often, you can actually something, you, you might take a photo of, of, of this place and it looks the same. Yeah. But you listen to it. It's changed. You can hear how it's changed. And so it's a whole new field of study. Yeah. He wrote a very interesting book called, that I read called The Great Animal Orchestra, yeah. which talks about how, we, uh, how it's essential for all these animals to be heard. And so they, they, they're all singing and talking and making noise, and, and they all, but they all have to be heard by their own. And so there, there needs to be a certain balance out there, just like in an orchestra. Yeah, sure. If uh, you, one species is covering up another, it, it, it doesn't work. You know? There needs to be space. And uh, I, I used some of his tracks on an album recently. I, I wrote some, I did some music with the sampled pans, um, and uh, kind of it's called jungle music. It's on my an album I did called We Kind of Music, yeah. and and the uh, the uh, the animals are a big part of the whole soundtrack of that song. Well, one thing that I hear in that experience of being invited to play keyboard and arrange in production school, as you just describe it, is that it probably gave you a window into how you could compose and produce and arrange and then bring it back into the steel pan world because today a big part of your life is not only as an innovative player of the instrument but also composer and arranger of music for the steel pan so did yeah. you take that experience the studio production school experience and then apply it immediately absolutely to the steel that pan? was yeah. always the goal yeah you know I, I, here i am I, I have a chance to learn how to record and yeah. produce and arrange and all that stuff and and i want to do my music yeah you know i want to apply i want to be a, an artist a recording artist yeah. and, a, and a producer it also got me into producing other people yeah which i i enjoy have enjoyed a lot yeah and uh you know i did uh uh had real some at one point, I had a, a, a contract where I could actually sign a, mm. a few artists and stuff, and I, I brought Billy Childs in and did four records with him, mm -hmm. and uh, Ray Obiedo was another, yes. and, and so on. Um, real proud of those records. Billy was a, an amazing artist to work with. So you were kind of A and R. You could you could sign kind of like that. Yeah, I was. Uh, I met Billy and, and heard his music and he didn't have a, a record deal yet yeah. and uh, and I brought him in and proposed that we w I want to sign this guy. It was that kind of a thing.
What do you think about the way the pan is represented in popular culture just in terms of what it signals? I mean, I know that you ended up playing on a lot of film scores also, and I can imagine that because you're so interested in recording and you're, you know, you, you sort of speak the language of the studio and production and also the language of the Afro-Caribbean music that you're the call, you're the cat to call. Yeah, and so often you're up against the the people's biases about what steel pans are and what they sound like and what they do. And yes. it's like it, they can only see it in a in a sort of a, a cliche Caribbean uh, context. That's why And I even even big time composers have had had to deal with that bias. You know, it's not just me. Um, yeah. I've always been up against that bias and and just kind of butted up against it at, at every op, you know, I just, yeah. but the, uh, for example, I started working with James Horner, yeah. who, uh, in the first film I did for him was 48 hours, mm-hmm. but I did a number of them <laughs> and he's the guy that did Titanic and yeah. Aladdin and he's a huge film composer. Yeah. And James had trouble with, with the producers. James wanted to use me on the score just because he liked the sound of steel pans. He yeah. wanted to put it in the orchestra. He thought it, it, it added something really different and unique to the percussion section of the orchestra and they were like steel steel pants you know there's no this film's not in the caribbean yeah (laughs) you know you'd more typically hear me like playing uh the last scene of trading places or something like that where where eddie murphy and dan Aykroyd are on the beach at the end of the whole film there's one little quick scene where now they're enjoying the caribbean and of course there's a steel band back there looking good billy ray feeling good lewis and uh, so those, I would do those kind of sessions. But James had me in the orchestra playing very atypical music from the beginning. Yes. You know, and I got to work with some, you know, really good composers. I worked with him. I worked with Marie Char, yeah. Tom Newman, Elmer yeah. Bernstein, uh, yeah. Michel Colombier, great film composers, you know. And I found... More often in the film music that I was being brought in, to, not just to do the the typical Caribbean yeah. thing. Well, that speaks to the openness and creativity of those film composers who are able to recognize the color and the potential of the instrument beyond our biases, as you say, the sort of more popular biases. Oh, this must be we're, we must be out on the beach. Right. But you know, you have lived through the development of the instrument, the modernization of the instrument, many of the high fidelity recordings of the instrument. And so in a sense, the way you hear it is kind of the way that most of us have become familiar with hearing it too, because you've been such an advocate and ambassador, as you say, for the instrument. Yeah, I mean, I've done a lot more recordings than anybody else. Yeah. And and I've kind of uh, developed, a, I've gotten to work with all the best engineers in the world. And, and uh, I've seen... Uh, you know, uh, articles in Mix Magazine, the engineering magazine, where they asked a famous engineer, yeah. um, how do you record steel pans? Yeah. And he said, well, I worked with Andy Norell, yeah. and this is how he does it. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I was really like, wow, what a compliment, you know. But, it, yeah, I've learned in, from those guys, and they and they learned from me too because uh, I'm the one with the, the hands-on daily experience that's recorded this thing a thousand times, you know. And, uh, I, you know, I often... You know, sometimes I butt heads with engineers at gigs who think they know more about st- how, to, how to mic up a steel pan because yeah. they did it before. Mm. I know you probably want to talk about the sample library and stuff, yeah. but that's what I did with that is give you all, you know, all the different kinds of stereo combinations that I use on my steel orchestra albums. 
Yeah. That's what I'm working with, you know. So I saw some of the tutorial that you did about this, this steel pan library, and it's really deep. I mean, it seems like for somebody who loves engineering and also loves steel drums, it must have just been a really fun project to do because you got to sort of invent the, the template for how people are going to... I mean, really, how most people in production will probably experience what steel drums are. Yeah, this is going to open up a whole new world for people because uh, they've got... Now the whole world will have access to a whole collection of Ellie Minette's most beautiful instruments played and recorded and mixed by me. Mm -hmm. All right, so... And these are the... Ellie and I are the combination. We've yeah. pretty much uh, kind of set a, a different kind of standard for the recording pans. Is Ellie still with us? or No, Ellie passed away a few years ago. He didn't get to see the end of this project, but he was involved with it, and he, he heard some of the demos I was working on as I was working on the project. He was very excited about this project. And uh, basically what it was was, uh, you know, I, I heard, like, all these bad steel pan sample libraries coming out. And uh, Were you ever asked to play on them or anything or had you played on had you been I, sampled before? I had been no I had been uh, briefly asked sometimes at recording sessions in LA can I sample your uh -huh. something on your pans and I was always no I'm not I, I don't think so I, El, this is Ellie's th sound not mine and and uh, you know and I, I just kind of dodged the issue because I didn't want to what? deal with I didn't want to be the guy that gave away the pans but you know? wait a, yeah I hear that I dig that and particularly when you speak to already the kind of you know, respect and balance that you try to strike with with the orig originators of the instrument. But it's interesting that you say this is Ellie's sound and not my sound, because that's sort of like saying that the sound of Bird is in the Selmer and not in, in the player, you know? Well, but you're literally looking at at the uh, the, the the inventor. Uh, you know, he's like, the, the there are five... Um different kinds of instruments in his sample library yeah. that I did. He does, he, they're his design, except yeah. for one, which uh, the, the bass, the, the, the six bass was, was created by some other guys in Trinidad, but the other four designs, he invented them. Yeah. They're all like his, his patterns, his designs, yeah. and, um, and he was the pioneer in, in like pushing this thing forward and evolving it to, to perfect it yeah. over a period of over 70 years. Yeah. And uh, that's quite a career, you know. So, um, yeah, I mean, and and the respect I have for all the people in Trinidad who contributed to this and all the, the pain that they went through to make this happen, you know, I didn't want to be known as the guy that just gave it away, Yeah, you know. And I, I just felt, you know, real mixed feelings about the whole thing. But what finally came back to is seeing all these bad sample libraries out there and hearing all these bad samples on records and stuff like that and synth patches. And one of Ellie's students, uh, Darren Dyke, came to me, and he had figured out how to use Contact Player and had a program in it, and he did a, a, a version of a sampled pan mm -hmm. and played it for me. It was mono. It yeah. wasn't, it was, and it didn't have a big, lot of dynamic yeah. subtleties and stuff, but it's, it was clean. And he said, you should do this, yeah. you know? And so I went to Ellie and I proposed it to him. And I said, uh, what do you think? You know, this is what we do. I sample all your instruments and put it out there. And, uh, you know, this will be, uh, your instruments will be available to musicians all over the world from now on. Yeah. 
you know, that'd be your, a part of your legacy. And uh, you, I promise you'll get royalties and uh, if there's any money made on this thing and so on. And, yeah. and Ellie was like, let's do it, hmm. you know. And so at that point, I had no idea what I was getting into. Yeah. I, I called a friend of mine who had done a, a big sampling project and he told me, oh, don't do it. It's so much work. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's way more work than you think it's going to be. It's going to cost you more than you think it's going to cost. And, and they're going to hack it and, you, you know, and so on and so on. And so I went right ahead and did it. Yeah. I just <laughs> did it low budget, <laughs> you know. And uh, it spent, you know, not all my time, but over a period of over five years, I was working on this thing. And um, I had a, it was really the, the big edu- I knew how to how to re- you know record pans, but how to record them to, for samples. That, that's a different way. So a number of ways I approached miking and, and doing it, but the real education was learning how to get inside this uh, sample player yeah. and do every figure out what it can do and how it works. And and once I got that together, I realized whoa, the possibilities here are just amazing. You know, and you said you you know this is common at this point, but one thing is to record it at whatever number of dynamic ranges of your choosing. In your case, it's like 30 ranges or something, right? Yeah. On average, it's about 35 to 40 different samples of every note on yeah. every pan. So that that gives you a lot of very fine-tuning subtlety in terms of all the covering all the dynamics that are possible. Yeah. And then uh, the, the balancing is was very tricky. I had to go through because once you load... We we uh, we wrote a script that we, Darren got somebody to write a script where um, they could create a list of each striking of the pan is yeah. now a separate audio file, yeah. and you create a list in order from loudest to softest, and yeah. they would load that way into contact. Uh-huh. So uh, by the way, we know num- they would number them. Yeah, and uh, but the tricky thing was really balancing these instruments, and yeah. I had to do that one sample at a time. So and there's over a thousand samples on on each instrument, and each one has been evaluated and adjusted to level to balance it with its neighbors. So that, I see. No, so it so plays that even. any MIDI velocity you play at, it's going to sound like a balanced instrument. Yeah. So I would use like a fixed velocity on Logic and just play the chromatic scale and make sure it's balanced at every possible MIDI velocity, and that every sample has been looked at in the entire library. And that's how I, I got to play create balanced instruments and then I balance them with each other into sections so you have like this double second that I'm playing and you have one two three four you have different combinations of different numbers of instruments and 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 each one is panned meaning left and right is panned in a way that um so the way I mix my albums so and and then uh you know it was a whole other uh ramp up of education when we came time to do the graphic interface yes because I realized well the way I'm doing it isn't isn't the way it's going to be set up yeah and I had to have learn how actually what the architecture is going to be that we're going to use and how we're going to build this thing and and re and then I redesigned the whole library to fit this uh, graphic interface knowing that you play piano also and that you understand what's possible as a piano player when you play this instrument as if it were a piano. I mean, you said to me earlier, yeah, you can get the whole orchestra across one keyboard. But it also seems like it actually creates a set of possibilities that really aren't possible with the pans. Right. I, all of a sudden, I realized, holy cow, I'm, yeah. I'm creating instruments that don't exist yes. in nature. This yeah. is like a whole new thing, yeah. you know. 
and uh, to be able to play a solo, a, a jazz solo on a, a whole section of pans and and double it in octaves just without having to actually play it in octaves, yes. just, just like MIDI, you yeah. know, or whatever. And and it was like, wow, yeah. this is a whole new instrument, you know. And and I, more I got into it, it was what became fascinating for me is all the things that I couldn't do mm-hmm. before. Not just having access to all these instruments, now they're all in my computer instead of having to travel all around to, to you know, I was doing... I was doing steel orchestra albums where I was overdubbing 20-some instruments. Yeah. I had to play every part of every song and, and, and on every instrument, yeah. the whole album on 25 instruments. Hmm. And they weren't all in one place. I'd be, uh, I'd be in Paris, I'd be in, in West Virginia, I'd be in California, wherever all these different instruments are being hmm. stored. And uh, it was an enormous amount of work. And now I, I've got all the instruments in my computer and I can... You know, so that's one thing. But then it's it's the it's the the possibilities that you can create all this these new sounds that didn't exist before. And uh, so I did a while the pandemic was happening. I was stuck home and I was finishing this this library. I also did an album yep. of music to see what I could do with it. And it's basically a steel orchestra album, but I played the whole thing on the keyboards hmm. and just have live drums and percussion and some horns and solos. And, and when stuff. is that coming? When is that? It's coming out? out. It's on SoundCloud. It's uh-huh. called Like a Child, and uh, it's at my website too. You can see it there. Yeah. It is a click, you know, and uh, it's for sale there. But yeah. uh, I've, I haven't put it on all the di- all the digital yeah. distribution yet, but. Um, there, you know, there's a link to the library. There's a there's a page at ilio.com, yeah. I-L-I-O. Yeah. And and at that page, there's also, under the audio demos, there's a link to my album. To album. And also, Andy Norell, Like a Child, you'll find it on SoundCloud. Yeah. Huh. And, you know, I'll put it on Spotify and soon. I know there are hundreds of stories that I could ask you about, but considering I just learned this one having lunch with you this afternoon, I'd like to ask you to tell it to me again about how you became this record-breaking artist in South Africa, because I think it's, more than anything, probably speaks to the vast, I don't know, collection of these anecdotes that you probably have, but Mm -hmm. this idea that you, unbeknownst to you, became a kind of hit maker in South Africa. Yeah, I first started, uh, you know, getting an inkling of it from the record company. I saw on the royalty statements, I was like, what's this going on a couple thousand sales in South Africa? Yeah. I, I, why am I selling albums there? You yeah. know, I, I didn't even know. And then a, 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 a guy uh, from South Africa came to a Caribbean jazz project gig, and Euro- we were playing in Europe. He came backstage. He told me, you know, there's a, a, there's a, a club in in Soweto called the Andy Norell Jazz Club. And I was like, what? (laughs) And I I didn't understand, you know. And he said, yeah, we have these listening clubs. And apparently what what was happening is that people were pooling their money. It was the same system they use for uh, making sure that people have enough money for funerals Mm -hmm. in in poor areas. And um, they... They were pooling their money to buy CDs and listen to recordings and into these clubs. And one of these clubs had decided to name itself after me, you know, kind of like. So, and 
so I still didn't have any idea what this yeah. means, you know. And <laughs> um, as I mentioned to you earlier, I, I, uh, I saw Hugh Masekela a few yeah. weeks before I went to uh, South Africa, and he told me, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of people at your gigs, <laughs> and your music's popular in South Africa now. And uh, I thought that meant a few hundred people yeah. might be out there. Yeah. And apparently what had happened was that it started playing it on the radio, and I'd had, like, they were playing it at all the bars and, and clubs in, in the townships, and these people were listening to it. It was on the radio, and, and I had some hit records over there. And I went to headline a festival called Arts Alive. It was at a place called Zoo Lake in, in Johannesburg. And it was a free concert, and we were closing the show. I was the headliner, and there were 70,000 people out yeah. there. And <laughs> they knew, they started singing along at these songs, and I, I a whole how did this happen and we went all over the country and everywhere we went people were you know erupting at the first two bars of of songs that I had written which had never happened to me before in my life you know and uh, And this is instrumental music all instrumental music yeah we just go bee bee doo dee dee doo wah you know people would be cheering (laughs) I was like holy cow and I didn't even I had no idea you know and it was a Basically, uh, you know, an, an entirely black audience. Uh, it hadn't crossed over at all into, into white culture, as far as I could see. Do you, you think know. they thought you were black when they first heard you? No, no, I, I don't think so. Um, but um, what do you think it was about the music that connected with them? Like, what, what was something going on? about the time? It was the end of apartheid. It happened yeah. before uh, b- before the the new the yeah. elections. It was like the late 80s yeah. when this happened. And uh, it was just like music was starting to come up from underground. Mm-hmm. There were Some people were still being banned, but there was, they were loosening up the uh, regulations on music. And, and here was this kind of like fusion of a jazz and Caribbean music and the sound of the pan and... and uh, it just it just hit people. I mean, I, I don't know why. I, I would I went out to Soweto and I'm I'm in a uh, there's hundreds of people in this this bar club and I'm being programmed between Salif Keita and Angelique Kijo yeah. and I can't figure it out yeah. how, how that can be, you know. But it it happened over there, and so I just you know I jumped on it. Yeah. I was like raring to come back, you yeah. know. We did a half a dozen gigs on that first trip, and I came back nine months later and uh, got a much tighter. Got the band much tighter. We did a dozen. We did like fourteen concerts on that yeah. tour. We did a live album, and uh, and I've been going back ever since. And I've been some of those people in my band I've been playing with for more than twenty years. Louis M. Klanga is one of the great guitar players in Africa. He's mm-hmm. from Zimbabwe, lives in Johannesburg. He's in the band and. It's a fascinating country. I love it. It seems like over and over again, I mean, a big part of what's happening in your life is that you are an artist and a, and a musician, and you, you are also, as you said, an ambassador and a kind of an advocate. You know, that there's an aspect of what you do that is a kind of form of advocacy and, there's, and, and, and respect and storytelling and keeper of this tradition. I mean, yeah. you, you have a kind of multi, very multifaceted, even even just focusing on your work with the pan you know a very multifaceted life and career that you're you're dealing with just built around one instrument uh it's just amazing how these accidents of fate can shape your whole life and uh you know i look back at uh that's why i 
you know, sometimes just uh, start the story with Joe McCarthy, you know, because it's it's such an odd place to start. <laughs> but it really it really is the reason that my father ended up in social work, and that's how I ended up in the steel pan. You know, I think given the nature of life, political and otherwise today, it actually gives me a sense of optimism that maybe 50 years from now, some other great, innovative, creative person will start their story inside one of the darkest political moments of uh, the American experience, which just ha just happened to us right now. I mean, maybe there's some benefit that we can't see, some hidden thing that is going to happen. We have to we have to hope and we have to find it. You know, we have to find a way out of this. And and uh, and I think. Uh, you know, music is a is a powerful tool. It, music is a and it's revolutionary. It brings people together in a way that uh, they don't want us together. <laughs> <laughs> well, Andy Norell, thanks for getting together with me today and telling me part of the story. Pleasure. Thank you. There he was, my friends, Andy Norell. Music is a powerful, revolutionary tool. What a story! I'll be back again in your headspace before you know it. Until then. I'll talk to you soon. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org slash studios.